Well, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, Acts 20. And the fellows have some Bibles, so if you need one, and we want you to follow along, if you would, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you that is already marked at that passage in Acts 20. We'll be looking at another passage in just a bit as well. Today is the conclusion of a three-week mini-series, the title of which is on the screen, Grace-Centered Living. It's a break in our series through the book of Ephesians. It's a convenient time for that break because we've completed in our study of Ephesians the first three of the six chapters. And that book is divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are the doctrinal teaching section. Chapters 4 through 6 are the practical application section. So as we're between those sections, we have several weeks for some other things. I'm going to be this week, Wednesday through Sunday, in Nova Scotia, speaking at a Bible conference there. So please pray for me while I'm traveling. But also, it means I will not be here next week. We'll have Brother Jared Compton, who will be speaking for us next week. Two weeks from today, uh, Phil uh, Davis's father, some of you know Ken Davis, is a professor at Baptist Bible College in Pennsylvania. He's going to be in town that week to teach his annual school of church planting, and I asked him to speak for us on the Sunday before, so that's two weeks from today. The following week is Father's Day. The three weeks after that, we will hear from our three pastors and training uh, fellows. The week after that is Ordinance Sunday, and then we'll get back to Ephesians on July 24th. So we've got a couple of months in between. Today is the conclusion of our mini-series, Grace-Centered Living. Two weeks ago, we looked at grace-centered change. And we saw then that for lasting change in our struggles, we need to do three things. Recognize the root, reject it with repentance, and then replace it with rejoicing. Last week was titled Grace-Centered Perspective. And we saw then that God's grace causes us to see our problems clearly and deeply and sadly. I mentioned in that message last week 35 x-ray questions which we can and each of us should ask ourselves in order to analyze our hearts and thereby identify the internal cause of many of our, our struggles. We have copies of those, I think, at the resource center. We do. Okay. So we have copies uh, of those 35 questions at the Resource Center. You can pick those up. They're, they're free, and I encourage you to do that. If we run out, we'll get more for, for next week. Today, you see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program, the title of today's message is Grace-Centered Solutions. God is the most powerful change agent in the universe. And the most powerful weapon in God's arsenal to effect change is the one that you all have in your hand, the Bible, the Word of God. It's indeed a weapon of change, as the Bible refers to itself as the sword of the Spirit. And it says that it's sharper than any common two-edged sword, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Bible is all about change. Its central message, the gospel, is about change because it is us being changed 
from being outside the family of God to becoming the sons and daughters of God adopted into his family. It tells us that we change from enemies of God, that's the Bible's description for us, to friends and followers and servants of God. Through the message of the Bible, we go from a position of condemnation before God to full acceptance before Him because He sees us through the perfection of Jesus, though indeed we are very imperfect. The Bible is all about change. First, from sinner to saint, when we come to God initially in salvation. But sadly, many professing Christians think that the change process ends there. I know I have a relationship with God. I know I'm going to heaven. So what change do I need? Well, if you're married, ask your spouse. If you're not married, ask your family and friends. Or just be honest with yourself. You see, friends, if God were only interested in the initial change that occurs when we're saved, when we come to God through Jesus Christ, the, the Bible would be a pretty thin book, wouldn't it? Its mere size attests that God's interested in more than you and I just getting saved. As a matter of fact, the mission that Jesus has given his church is to make disciples, not just make converts. You remember in those famous words, final words of Jesus, at the close of his earthly ministry, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so I ask you, how long has it been since you've changed? If you've had the humility and the courage to ask your spouse, how am I a better husband or wife to you than I was last year? If you've had that humility, you've had that courage, what would they say? If you were to ask your family and friends, how have you seen my attitude and my words change in the last year, what would they say? Now, if you accept the proposition that we all need to be in the, in the process of change, and if you also accept that the Bible is God's instrument of change, then why is it that most of us have not seen more change in our lives? Well, one reason is that we didn't see the need. We've been convinced that we have all the change that really matters. We're going to heaven when we die. We're saved. If you've had that perspective, then I hope our brief series has disabused you of that. It's really a truncated approach to the Christian life. But others of us admit we have struggles but we locate the source of those struggles outside of ourselves. The source is my spouse, or my kids, or my job, or my health, all things that are really outside of my control. Until they get it together, I really can't change, is the way we think. But we saw last week that the source of our problems in how we deal with the external stimuli that's all around us, family life and work life and our health, the real source of that is our hearts. It's an internal issue. And so that even if we change spouses, or we leave our families, or the kids just grow up and move out, or I get a new job, or a new miracle drug cures my sickness, I will still have the same internal motivations, the same heart, the same 
of what the Bible calls idols that I'm chasing. And so, hear this. A change of address does not result in a change of heart. But for others of us who have seen the need for heart change and we've gone to the Scriptures to affect it, it still hasn't happened, at least not in a lasting way. So why not there? I think it's because of this. I think it's because we failed to use the Bible as intended. Most of us see the Bible as either a reference book or as a talisman, something magical that you keep near you, you rub from time to time to release the magical powers. Now, what both of those approaches have in common is that they refer to the Bible occasionally, that is, when the occasion warrants it. And even if we open the Bible every day, we often do that in a haphazard fashion reading wherever the devotional guide has us on that particular day so that I've gotten my thought for the day. Now, none of these approaches uses the Bible as it, in fact, is. It is a story. And it's an amazing story from beginning to end that tells us about God, tells us about our struggles and our sin and our wandering, And it tells us in the story about God's relentless pursuit of us despite ourselves. Now, I know that most of us do not approach the Bible that way, in the story-formed way. Because when, at the beginning of this year, we went through our Bible in 90 Days series, that was the first time that many had ever read through the entire Bible from beginning to end. And some have still never done that. Many Christians go through their lives for decades and have never read through the Bible to get the story. Now hear this. If we don't read the Bible from beginning to end regularly, we will inevitably use it as a reference book or as a talisman. David Henderson, in his book Culture Shift, describes that approach this way. We often treat the Bible as if it were the ultimate how-to book, an encyclopedia of practical wisdom and insight. But the Bible is more like a novel. I can dip into my Encyclopedia Britannica wherever I want, read a few paragraphs, pick out the information that will benefit me, and then close it. But with a novel, I can't do that. I must relate every passage, every description or conversation or turn of events to the overall plot. Otherwise, it makes no sense, at least not its intended sense. The Bible, he goes on, is not a collection of Confucian proverbs, each of which can stand alone. It is all of a piece. Nor is it a collection of stories. It is one story, the story of how God in Jesus Christ came to indifferent and self-absorbed humanity with the sole notion that those cold and callous men and women should be made right with him. And he says, the term then, biblical, needs to be redefined. Biblical cannot mean merely from somewhere within the pages of Scripture. In light of the way the Bible is written, as a single fabric of thought stretching from front to back, biblical must mean in keeping with what the Bible is about. And the Bible is about 
God's unstoppable passion to be known, loved, and served through Jesus Christ by those that He has made. The Bible is the story of a gracious God who is passionately and relentlessly pursuing sinful people like us. Now, I had you turn to Acts 20 to show that. Because there the Bible is referred to in a way that we don't often consider. What we have in Acts chapter 20 from the middle of the chapter to the end is a goodbye that a servant of Jesus, Paul, many of you are familiar with him. And Paul is giving this goodbye to the leaders of the church in a city called Ephesus. And the passage tells us that he's been with them for three years and he's now leaving. And as he departs, he has moving and very important words for these church leaders. Notice what he says to them, beginning in verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Now notice, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. But notice, the gospel of God's grace, as he refers to it, must include more than just the plan of salvation because he goes on. And he famously says in verse 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you The whole will of God. And then in his concluding remarks, in verse 32, says this. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace. Notice that phrase, the word of His grace. And that word of His grace can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. Now, at the top of your outline, I have two passages listed, Acts 20, but also 2 Timothy. And I ask you to turn to 2 Timothy as we see this idea of the Word of God and its gracious story unfolding for us as the agent of change that it's intended to be, 2 Timothy. Now, if you have one of the Bibles that the guys handed out, that's page 1118, 1118. Now, interestingly, the the man who later became pastor of the church at Ephesus that was just addressed in Acts 20 was a man named Timothy. And the same Paul who was speaking in Acts 20 wrote two letters to Pastor Timothy to instruct him on how to lead the church there. Now, notice what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. God's grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now, he's writing a four-chapter letter to this young pastor to instruct him on life in God's church and on instructing people in Christian living. But he sets his instructions from the outset in the context of the larger story of God's grace to his people going to before the world was created. 
And that's because our lives are the outworking of what this gracious God planned in his pursuit of us before time began. And so he tells Timothy in chapter 2. Notice in verse 1. Be strong, Timothy. But be strong in what? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's in that context. The story of God's grace and our place within that story. That the most famous verse in the Bible, about the Bible, is given. And that's in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. And most of you are familiar with verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This passage tells us that the Scriptures, the Bible, are from God. They are breathed out, God-breathed from Him. And then tells us the four things they do, but the Scriptures do these four things in the context of the story. They teach, and they rebuke, and they correct, and they train. Those four things are in a logical order. Before you can be rebuked, you have to be first taught. And before you can correct, you have to see what's wrong. That's the rebuke part. And before you can have discipline, training, and righteousness, you have to have corrected the issue initially and now develop habits so that that is a pattern of life. But what I want us to see is that the teaching and the rebuking, the correcting and the training, are done as we see ourselves in the story that the Scriptures unfold. The story of the grace of God as He pursues hopeless and helpless people like us. Now how then does the story of God's grace in the Bible teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us? How does it do that? That's what I have for you in your outline. I want us to see, first of all, that the Word of grace, the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, the Word of grace, teaches us whose we are. It teaches us to whom we belong, whose, W-H-O-S-E, whose we are. Now, I think part of the reason we've often failed to see the biblical forest for the doctrinal trees is the fact that the King James actually translates this first word. It says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and then that first word is doctrine. So it's translated the Greek word didaskalos as doctrine, and what we tend to do is systematize doctrine. One of my favorite classes at seminary was something called systematic theology. And it was a compilation of doctrine, of the teachings of the Bible. Very helpful. We teach a class in our institute called Master Plan for Life. And I refer to that as a systematic theology for regular people. It's just sort of on the average person's wavelength that we we teach that. I think it's very necessary to know the doctrinal teachings of Scripture. 
But the problem is when we only systematize those things into compartments and don't see those teachings in the larger context of the story that is the Bible. And so we look to the Bible for the doctrine of God and the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the end times. And if we're not careful, we parcel it up and we divorce it from the story. The NIV has translated that first word helpfully for us as teaching. And so in the context of the story, the Bible is teaching us. And one of the main things it is teaching us is whose we are. And it begins by teaching us that we are creatures of the loving and all-powerful Creator. And as we'll see, it teaches us that we rebelled from the loving direction of our Maker. And yet that did not stop the story, thankfully. God carried out a, a plan to rescue and to save and to deliver rebellious sinners from the consequences of their rebellion. And He did that by coming to earth Himself. And living the life that we should have lived. And dying the death that we deserved. So that by His perfect life and His sacrificial death, we can be restored to God. The Bible teaches us, in the context of the story, whose we are. And it teaches us whose we are throughout. Let me share with you some of the passages that speak of whose we are. Who we belong to. Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible tells us that we've received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. And if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Just pause and wonder for a moment at what God says about whose we are. But He goes on in that passage in Romans chapter 8, famously, talking about whose we are, and therefore, and I'm going to demonstrate this for you, then who cares? what anybody else thinks about who or what we are. What can anyone else do to us? Does anyone else really matter if, in fact, I belong to God through Jesus? And that's what Paul says. He gives an outline of this glorious gospel of grace and then asks, what then? Shall we say in response to this, that is our salvation, if God is for us, then who can be against us? <laughs> he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who cares about anybody else? When God has rendered His verdict. But Paul goes on, who will bring any charge against those God, whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? And then he asks, lastly and famously, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
the Word of God teaches us and thereby starts the process of changing us in the context of the story. It teaches me whose I am. And it teaches me all that God has done to make me and you whose we are. Let me just bounce through a list of some of the titles that the Word of God, the Scriptures give us about who we are. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We are the children of God. We are called Christ's friends. We are said to be in Scripture chosen and appointed by Christ. We are righteous in the sight of God, despite our sin. We are sons and daughters of God. God is our spiritual father. We are joint heirs with Christ, sharing in his inheritance. The Bible says we are his temple. We are a dwelling place for God. His spirit and his life dwell in us. The Bible says we're united to the Lord. We are one with him in spirit. We are Christ's body. We are his new creation. We have been reconciled to God and we are ministers of that reconciliation. We are saints. We are His workmanship, His handiwork. We are fellow citizens with the rest of God's family, citizens of of heaven. We're chosen by God to be holy and dearly loved. We are sons and daughters of light and not of darkness. We are holy partakers of a heavenly calling. We are God's living stones built up in Christ into a spiritual house. Members of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. We're aliens and strangers to this world in which we temporarily live. Enemies of the devil. We are not the great I am. But thanks be to God by the grace of God. I am what I am. The Bible teaches us whose we are. And so who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name and would care to feel my hurt? And who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? And who am I and who are you that the eyes that see our sin would look on us with love and watch us rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? It's not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. It's not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I'm a flower quickly fading. Here today, gone tomorrow, wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind, and still you hear me when I'm calling, catch me when I'm falling, and Lord, you've told me who I am. I am yours. The Bible teaches us whose we are. And we are His because He made us. And because He bought us with His own blood. The word of grace teaches us whose we are. But then notice secondly in your outline. The word of grace rebukes who we are. It teaches us whose we are, but it rebukes 
who we are. Now that word rebukes is the word that's translated elsewhere in your Bible as convict. And so the word of grace convicts us for who we are. This word convict is sometimes used in a subjective way by folks. That is, you have a conviction about something that I don't have and so on. So you might have a conviction, I don't have a conviction. That's not the way the Bible most often uses it. It's not the way it's used here. This is used in an objective sense. Just like we would use in our legal system, we are convicted for something that we have done wrong. And the Word of God, in what it presents about us, convicts us. We are convicts. We, are, we have offended. And we see that in Scripture. We belong to God. We were made in His image by a loving and gracious God. We've been bought by the Savior. And we are convicted of the offense of who we are. Because of that, the Bible says things like, Godly sorrow brings repentance. I look into the pages of Scripture, I see these marvelous things about who God is and what He's done for me and bringing me into His family, whose I am. But then I see who I really am in the way I live and in my devotion and in my allegiances. And it brings conviction. And sorrow that leads to repentance. And thus this change agent of the Bible teaches us, but it rebukes us, convicts us. But it's not going to produce change by simply showing us who we are in our sinful rebellion, ongoing, even as professing believers. It won't have that effect unless we have the humility to admit to what the Bible says. That's why the Bible says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You see, friends, very often we are unwilling to admit what God says about us, about who we are, about why we do what we do, about why we think the way we think and talk the way we talk. The Bible is designed to graciously show that to us and to convict us. But it will only work if we accept God's verdict upon what we have done because of who we are. We're sometimes afraid to admit that we've sinned because we don't know what the authority is going to do. You remember when you were a kid or perhaps now in adulthood? You've done something wrong. Someone in supervision and authority is going to find out about it. You're afraid to admit it because you're afraid of how they're going to react to it. And so when we were kids, we wanted to cover it because we were afraid of how they were going to react. Now, think about how foolish that is. In our relationship with the Lord Jesus, in light of whose we are, in light of the gracious heart that He has exhibited in all that He has done for us to bring us to Himself, that we would treat Him the way we would treat sinful human authorities before us and say, I have to cover it. I can't admit it. I can't come clean because I don't know how He's going to handle that information. Maybe He'll use that against me. Nothing could be further from the heart of our gracious God. It convicts, but not that I've broken a rule. Hear this, friends. 
It convicts within the context of our relationship with this God whose we are. It convicts not that I've broken a rule, but that I've broken a heart. And that ought to break our heart as we admit to this one who died for us that what he says about us is true. How many couples continue in the war that is their home because they will not admit their sin before each other? How many people, relationships in general, have been broken and will not be restored and repaired unless and until we have the humility to accept what God says about us? And Christians of all people who belong to the Lord God, who have the safety of being in His family and can never be disinherited, who know and have experienced His loving heart, ought to, of all people, be able to admit when we are convicted that we are wrong. The Bible rebukes us of who we are. And if it were to put a period there in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching us whose we are and rebuking us for who we are, period, well, then that's a miserable thing indeed, isn't it? I'm left with still this this realization of who I am. But it doesn't leave us there. It teaches us whose we are. And in the context of this relationship, rebukes us, convicts us for who we are. But thirdly, the word of grace corrects what we want. The word of grace corrects what we want. That word corrects. We have our word erect. If you're going to erect a building, you're going to cause that building to be constructed, to stand. To correct means to cause to stand that which has fallen. And so the Word of God teaches us whose we are, but then rebukes us, convicts us for who we are. But He doesn't leave us there. The Word of God then corrects us correcting what it is we want. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, the reason that we've fallen is what we've seen the last two weeks. The reason that we've fallen is because of what we want, what we desire, what's in our hearts. And so now the Word of God seeks to cause to stand that which has fallen and does that by changing what it is we want. The Bible is very clear that Jesus has died to call out a people for His very own who have redirected now their priorities and their allegiances to Him and to Him alone, no longer following the idolatrous desires of our hearts. And so the Bible says He died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. The Bible instructs us that our our hearts need to be redirected toward the one who died for us by telling us things like this. We make it our goal to please Him. 
the Bible rebukes us and corrects us because of what we want, our internal desires, by prayers that are given in places like Psalm 19. Notice what it says. The psalmist prays this, May may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Now notice this, my rock and my redeemer. Think about if the psalmist prayed, May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, the rock, the redeemer. Or you're the rock, you're the redeemer. But notice the personal relationship. You are my rock, and you are my redeemer. And it is because I know whose I am. And I see and rebuked and convicted because of who I am. That now... Being reminded of that, it changes what I want. No longer wanting my idolatrous desires, but wanting what pleases you. This correction occurs when there is something greater for which to live than this puny thing that I'm holding on to. The Word of God teaches me there is something, no, not something, there is someone greater for which to live than this puny thing that I'm holding on to. That grudge, that possession, that hurt, that bitterness, whatever that is, there is someone greater for which to live, greater than the temporary pleasure I get from being right or being sexually satisfied or whatever it is. When we see then ourselves in the light of this larger story, we are taught by the Bible whose we are. We're rebuked for who we are. And He corrects us with regard to what we want. Then we will be willing to confess and to repent. Confess means, the word confess in the Bible literally means to say the same thing. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. That's what confession is. Lord, you've shown me what I am. You've shown me that my heart wanders from you and I want to hold on to this grudge, onto being right, onto my pride, onto whatever it is. But you have shown me that my relationship with you and honoring you is of greater worth than that puny thing. I confess what you have said about me. And I repent. I've told you two weeks ago, repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of life. The word of grace teaches us whose we are. The word of grace rebukes us, convicts us. For who we are, the Word of Grace corrects what we want. And lastly, the Word of Grace trains for where we're going. The Word of Grace trains us in righteousness for where we're going. That word training means is the same word in your Bible for discipline. It disciplines us. Now, why... Would you and why would I be motivated to do the right thing day in and day out, disciplined training in righteousness? What would motivate us to do that? It's this, that the word of grace teaches us 
where we're going. The reason I'm willing to do the hard thing because it's the right thing day in and day out as a disciplined act of righteousness is because I know where I'm going and there's a reward for that at the end by this gracious God whose I am. It will be worth it all, said the songwriter, when we see Jesus. And that's why Paul concluded his famous chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, this way, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Here's why. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus has raised. Jesus is alive. You too will raise. The things that you do now are not in vain. Paul said at the end of his life, the next chapter after the one we're considering, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, I've fought the fight. And I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to all those who have longed for His appearing. For the words of the Lord Jesus, why would I do the right thing, though difficult, day in and day out, discipline, training, and righteousness? Because I know that one day I will hear the words of the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. The word of grace trains us for where we're going. Well, if the Word of God is this change agent then, and that change takes place in the context of the story, whose we are and where we're going and what He's doing in and through us in the meantime, then what should I do with all of this? Well, what we need to do then is be regularly reading this change agent, do we not? Reading the Scriptures regularly. And not just, friends, bits and pieces but reading through the story regularly and seeing ourselves there and seeing God there. If you weren't able to do the Bible in 90 days, and even if you were, you start over again. 90 days may be too quick for you, so it may take a year. Good. Read through the Bible every year. And we have some help for you to do that. On our resource table is a devotional. It does have a devotional, a spot every day scattered throughout Scripture. You say that violates everything you just said about the story. Well, here's the other thing that it includes. It includes a Bible reading schedule to read through the Bible in one year. So it gives you something for each day, but it also gives you passage to read so that you get through the Bible in one year. That's why we have those there. So pick one of those up. They're $5. That's what it costs us to make them. If you don't have $5, pick it up. If nobody's there for you to tell them you took it, just take it. At the judgment seat, we'll be there. I say, I vouch for that guy. (laughs) You read it, and you read it through. You read the story. You learn it. We offer ways for you to learn it. That's what we're about here. We offer a class called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. It tells you how the Bible's put together, about its storyline. You learn it and you discuss it. Discuss the Bible and what you're reading in it with others who are reading it as well. 
That means you hang around with Christians. That means you go to things like community groups and discuss it. Really. If you can, if you're able to go, you go so I can apply this to my life. Kim is always asking me at home. She's reading through the Bible all the time, and she's asking me, what does this mean? And I go, ask your pastor. And, <laughs> and I remember I'm on, I'm on for that duty. But why? Because she's always reading through Scripture. Your take-home truth and your outline. Lasting change comes only when we apply God's solution to our problems. My last point is this. You know, friends, if you're not careful, attending church can be bad for you. Now, what do I mean by that? If you think simply showing up will make you spiritually healthy, it can be really bad for you. It's like showing up at the doctor's office and thinking you'll be physically healthy just because you walked in. Matter of fact, you know, there's sick people there. <laughs> Some of that's going to rub off on you too. I've actually heard people say to me, you know, there are people that have problems in this church. Really? Just showing up at the doctor's office, thinking you're going to be physically healthy, of course, is, is nonsense. And, and the doctor might tell you you need surgery every week. But you ignore it week after week, and you wonder why your condition does not change or is even getting worse. Just showing up at the office doesn't change anything. I've given you the prescription because God has given us the prescription. You must take it. 